welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we'll be talking about educational games. Video games are capable of teaching all kinds of important lessons, like the most effective way to dab on your haters, but can they also teach us valuable life skills? To help me answer this question and many more is a man who learned everything he knows about politics from Metal Gear Solid, my good friend Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? Good, good. Yes, I know who I am voting for this election, and it is not Solidus. Solid Snake. No. Oh. <laughs> Liquid Snake? Ocelot Revolver? Listen, These are all the characters not, I can it's name. It's not generally to ask, but <laughs> it's definitely the girl who made the eggs in Metal Gear Solid 4. Wait, no. See, this is where I feel bad that I've fallen off the Metal Gear train. There were, There's a monkey that smokes and sells guns, and now there's a woman that makes eggs? Yeah, it's a little girl, and, and she teaches you how to make the perfect fried egg. And what office is she running for in this fake scenario you've President. made up? I mean, oh, okay. yeah, I'm talking about I'm talking about down the line. I'm just getting <laughs> okay, ready good. to start campaigning for her. Well, Jared, today we have an amazing guest with us to talk about educational games. She's a game designer at Eline Media and the content developer for their youth game-making initiative, Make Room. She's also an adjunct professor at Rutgers University, so she's the perfect guest to talk about educational games with. Please welcome to the show Elaine Gomez. Elaine, welcome. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing very well. Thank you. And thank you so much for being here. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we were able to make this work. Um, where to start? Where to start? Uh, Eline Media is a company that I know from Never Alone. And I think, I think we've actually yeah. talked about that. I think we've talked about that on the show before. I think it was, it was back in our digital distribution episode, I think. Alex brought that one up. And we were, we were all super high on that game. But Elaine, Eline Media seems like a company to me that really, it focuses on things like social awareness and education. I'm just curious, like, was, was that a big draw for you when you were uh, looking for work or when you were getting hired at the company? Was that something that was important to you as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was funny that at the time that I was getting interviewed for the position, I had recently finished Never Alone. And it was just funny how everything just kind of mapped together in that sense that the I finished the game and then a couple weeks later the position popped up online and I applied. It really drew me. It was different than anything that I had played before because it was an indigenous story that was very much a real rooted folklore story from a group of people that I have never heard of, the Crook Inlet tribe in Alaska. Mm -hmm. um, and seeing how they were able to kind of intertwine media, right? Because they did mm -hmm. these uh, documentary snippets that you would watch and you would collect as you played. And then on top of that is the whole idea of this little girl um, going on her hero's journey to solve an issue, right? So mm -hmm. that all drew me. And um, then I, met, I have had friends uh, who made Mulaka. I don't know if you guys have heard about Mulaka. It came out like multi-platform. I'm not familiar now. So Moluk is another indigenous-based game um, made by a studio in Mexico. Um, it's about the Taramura tribe in Mexico. They're mountain peoples, and they're very uh, well-known for their ability to run very long distances um, with sandals on. That's just a tradition oh, that they have. Yeah, so in the game, you're this character, and he has, like, 
and you know he he has the capability of being able to run long distances then his stamina is always like infinite because of that but it's this whole idea of bringing in indigenous folklore indigenous history back to life in digital hmm. mediums and i'm like really drawn to that um and being part indigenous as well and being uh, interested in in rooting myself in my my heritage and my history and trying to see how I can use my craft to be able to bring some of the stuff back to life and bring awareness and to encourage and motivate young people to to also kind of chase after their roots and get to know who they really are that's like I'm just really passionate about that overall so it just aligned perfectly with what I was doing already like on the side um and I'm glad that Elaine brought me on board and that they are passionate as well in, in youth, just in general, creating opportunities for kids and young people to learn how to make games. Um, and that's something that I loved. Now, how does that manifest itself in the corporate setting? Like, are there initiatives that the company is like very adamant about or does that come from the ground up? H how does it show up in that corporate structure? You know how diversity and inclusion has been at, like going on for years, like all over the industry and even mm -hmm. all over tech, where you know people are being hired, like specific managers or or um, third party uh, consultants are being hired to kind of restructure like dynamics within companies to try to see how we can hire more people of color, how can we be more inclusive in the stories and the characters that we're creating, things like that. And I just think the uh, I think the higher ups at Eline are very conscious about all of that stuff, and they're trying their best to integrate it in the games that they're creating, but also in the teams that they are building to create all of these different types of projects. So, um, like any any company, no company is perfect, and I know that there's always room for companies to do better, and and I think that's what's going on right now, but definitely in trying to bring culture into the corporate etiquette, I guess. Um, one of the things that's not well known is that Eli Media is partly owned by the Cook Inlet tribe. And that all came out of Never Alone because of that collaboration and mm. because of the success of that game. So uh, Never Alone was an idea really that the tribe themselves approached and proposed to Eli. And that's where that collaboration came from. It's not like Eline was like, we want to make an Alaskan native game and let's talk to the native community about it. It was actually the opposite. That was a really interesting collaboration because you have people that have no idea how to make games. They don't know how to use technology. They don't know the complications of the game development pipeline. They don't know anything about you know, the logistics behind it, but they were willing to fund it and to go to you know, educational experts and be like, hey, we want to make something that we can use to reach our youth. What is the best way that we can do this? And we'll give you everything that you need as regard as, you know, financial backing in order to make it happen. And um, I think from that, really, that, that communication and that, uh, I guess, uh, desire really to do things genuinely and with authenticity that has really trickled down to every facet of the company. And that's really what, what I can really say about how culture has been integrated into how the company works. And I know that as we continue to create new projects and we are get ourselves involved with other 
indigenous communities that want to make games just like the Kukuma tribe did. I know that things will just get better and better as we go on and we keep learning from what we're doing. Now, Make Room is Eline's youth youth game making initiative. And now I'm curious, what, what does that mean? Like, what is Make Room and then what is your involvement with it? So Make Room is an entity um, that was created in order to have these uh, after school game design and game development programs. Um, and it's, it's attached to Eline. Um, so the company funds everything going on with Make Room. They create the partnerships and opportunities. And then we make, uh, we talk to schools, we talk to other nonprofit organizations, things like that in order to hold classes. I was first brought on as a contractor, independent contractor last summer to kind of assess and implement the pilot curriculum that they had. So we started this pilot in Phoenix, which is where Eline, the, the game studio is headquarters is there. Wait, um, Phoenix, act- Phoenix, Arizona? Yes, Phoenix, that's Arizona. Where, that's where I am. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's where we're in Tempe. No, oh, nice. I mean, maybe I got to try and make a trip over there if they'd be willing to have me. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm sure I can make an introduction. Oh, that would be so sweet. Oh, that would be amazing. All right. <laughs> no I'm, problem. I'm, I'm I thought you guys admitted the uh, IDGA meeting or no, something. I was like, no, that's really this random. Is, <laughs> this is totally random, but I love it. Sorry, I didn't mean, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, it's okay. No, the studio is there, but um, the pilot program, our two-week kind of game-making boot camp that we made for last summer, it, we had it at the studio. So the kids would come in in the morning and they were in the same environment as the developers and like everybody else was. So they got to talk to them and they got to get critique and get feedback from them when they were making their, their own projects and things like that, which is really cool. Um, so I was brought on to, in the beginning, like since inception, I have been uh, with Make Room. And then from then on my, my I guess my roles have just changed. I kind of have climbed up the ladder. So I started as a contractor and then I became part-time employee and now I'm full-time employee. So uh, it's one of those things just like if you stick to it and then you make it work, like you will get to where you would want to go. It just takes time and, and effort. Now, were you already teaching at the university or was teaching at the university? Did that come after? No, I was already starting to teach. So funny how that happened. So my, I have a mentor at Rutgers University because that's where I um, got my undergraduate degree. Um, and my mentor, uh, he was leaving Rutgers um, to teach at another college. And he approached me and he said, hey, have you been able to find a job after graduating? Because I went to U- University of Southern California and got my master's in game design there. I graduated in 2016. So right after I was not able to land anything in Los Angeles, it's like everything's super competitive. You have all the kids that are undergraduate graduating with game design degrees and then you have the master's. And then we're also competing in like UCLA and then Mm. you have um, CalArts. So there's so many different schools with very qualified, exceptional students graduating that want to get into the industry. And that's where a lot of studios are. So it just happened to be that I didn't land something. So I ended up moving back home to New Jersey. And um, my my mentor was like, hey, if you have not landed a job yet, would you want to take over my class? It's a class called Social Impacts of Video Games. And I was like, sure, I'll take it over. I revised this curriculum. I gave it my flair from the perspective of somebody who knows about game design 
instead of like that ac more academic uh, game studies type of lens, which is his expertise. So um, that's how I started teaching. Um, and I started September of 2016. So I started teaching a full year before I started at Eline. And then Rutgers gave me another class uh, called, which they called Intro to Game Design, but in reality, it's like Intro to Game Development because it's a Unity-based class. Um, so then I started teaching that uh, the following uh, September. So I've been teaching for a bit. And then I was a TA at USC as well. Um, and that class was not game design. It was, um, do you guys know what Arduino is? Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm sort like of familiar. I'm computing. familiar with like the little boards and people yeah. use controllers for things. Exactly. So um, I was a TA for a class called Alternate Controller Workshop, and we used Arduinos to create like really funky, crazy controllers for games. So nice. we encouraged uh, the students to use games that already existed, so they wouldn't have to like construct a controller and a game from scratch. So we had kids make like really crazy stuff for games like Shovel Knight, where they would use different sensors um, or or things to like block light or LEDs, things like that, in, in order to to be able to interact with the game. Hmm. So that was the very first class that I was a part of, where I kind of got some teaching experience, and from then on, that's where I've been, I guess, pouring my free time in. Except now that I'm in Eline, which is part of my official tasks of my job is to do to, to teach. For someone who went so quickly from graduating from a game design program into teaching in a game design program, are there are there improvements that you're trying to make in from the way that you learned and, and then to the way that you're teaching up and coming game designers? I would say so. One of the things that I did not like when I went to school was that game programming and game development is something that you learn on your own. Like it's not something that you're taught in class. So I remember my very first like Unity 3D class. On our first day, we were told, "All right, by next week you have to make a project." Like good luck. And it's just like, wow. Like I have no idea how to use this software. <laughs> I have never opened it. Um, and it was really scary. And I even thought about like dropping out. I was like, you know what? Maybe I pursued. Uh, degree that it just isn't for me. Maybe it just sounded good, but now that I'm actually doing it, this is not what I really wanted to do. But um, it's just one of those things, and I'm sure if you talk to other independent developers or other people who have uh, gone to school for game design, it's one of those things that you just have to practice on your own. And Google and YouTube have been my teachers. Like, I give kudos to Brackies uh, on YouTube because I have learned so much uh, game development and Unity development from him. Um, but what I tried to do, because I was taught in this manner of like, I'm going to throw you into like a den of lions and you need to fend off for yourself. Um, what I tried to do with my students is go about it in a much practical way. Instead of being vague about, oh, here, just make a game in the next week. What I try to teach my students when it comes to game development is um, tool sets. So for example, um, one day in class, we'll go over how to make a character controller. And I go over every single component that a character controller needs in order to work. So how do you put the animations on? How do you make them flow between that and the programming? Um, what is the difference between a 2D controller and a 3D controller? And um, what is the different calls that you need to make into the physics? 
part of, of the game engine in order to make the distinction between something that's 2D and something that's 3D. Um, so that's the type of stuff that I try to do. I try to be very meticulous so that they understand what is being uh, woven together and that they can deconstruct it later on to create the specific movements that they would like in their own game. So that's how I go about it. I try to just be very practical and it's more about giving tools in order to make the game instead of just being uh, big, like I said, just being vague about how to make a game. I can, I can relate to that because in my line of work, it's very much just like, can you do this? And I, I've said this before, but I'll just say yes. Like I will figure it out. Like you have infinite information at your fingertips, almost anything you can find online to, to educate yourself. And it was more of a, you know, like After Effects, for example, I, I kind of taught myself how to use that program. And then when it comes up in my professional career, I'm like, yes, I can use After Effects and let me figure out how to do this for you, this very specific thing. And that way of, of teaching yourself something is it works for me. I don't know if it works for everybody else, but it's a good start. Yeah, that's a good skill to have, right, to be self-sufficient where you don't have to rely on anybody else in order to do the thing that you want to do. But exactly. it just takes time. And then when you have a homework assignment that's due a week, a week from that day, there's not a lot of time to learn because there's other classes that you're taking too. So it, it's difficult to be able to time manage and to pick and choose what you need to teach yourself to be able to hand in that assignment and pass. So that's something that I, that I struggled with um, when I went to school. Um, we were encouraged to be honest, to use a lot of like standard assets. It's like, don't reinvent the wheel. If you can find something out there that functions the way that you want it to, use it and just give credit to whoever made that inside your scripts or inside a readme file in your project. I mean, there've been plenty of indie games that have come out over the last few years where I'm like, oh, that that this is definitely a Unity game. I've seen that asset before, but it doesn't mm -hmm. really matter because the game as a whole is, you know, a unique piece of work. Yeah. Right, exactly. It's like sampling music, like you can make any anything that you would like in regards to music and some of them, some tracks from different bands and things. I listen to a lot of heavy metal. So if you listen to some bands, they sound like super similar, but just because they are doesn't mean that they're the same. So it's, it's the same thing with games. You'll see a lot of game mechanics that are the same, you know, like Fortnite and PUBG, right? But they're different games, mm. right? Kind of like how under pressure sounds a lot like vanilla ice. Yeah, I think there were lawsuits about that one. <laughs> Probably. Now, <laughs> now, Elaine, I have in the past listened to a lot of heavy metal. I've fallen, I've fallen out of listening to it. Do you have any recommendations for good albums that have come out in like the last five years that would get me back into heavy metal? Oh, man. Okay, so I listen to a lot of the growly, screamy stuff. <laughs> but there's some really good bands that have come out recently. Um, one of my favorites is called Alien Weaponry. They got their name from that movie, District 9. Um, uh, nice. <laughs> I'm 100% sold already. I don't even I'm need to board. listen yes. to a song. These guys, okay, so it's three, it's three young kids. Like, they started the band when they were like, 15 16 and they have won awards they're from new zealand they have won like metal awards they won like a battle of the bands in new zealand and like now they became global and they're being like played in the liquid metal like the the satellite radio uh heavy metal station so they've been getting a lot of traction but they're absolutely incredible and what's super cool that attracted me the most is that one of their albums is nearly all in the Maori native language, 
Oh, cool. This gets better and better the more you talk about yeah. this band. It's just just listen to like uh like a song by them where they're it's they're very political. Like they're very woke <laughs> about what's going on with like the the indigenous community and how like colonialism and imperialism has affected like their lands and like their culture. So in one of the in one of the songs, they talk about how they have been completely washed away and how they wanna like rise up and and reclaim what was stolen from them so it's like really powerful stuff but it's a great a great band like it makes you want to headbang and just you know it, at least it gives me it amps me up when i listen to them i i have a very strong desire to like just go to youtube right now and, and look up this music yeah, but please do. <laughs> unfortunately we gotta we got a podcast to run here i can't <laughs> yeah someone needs to stop Any me from doing this podcast is really weird they just took like a half hour <laughs> like, yeah and they just listened to heavy metal, metal. yeah <laughs> Yeah, but I definitely recommend them. I I gotta I gotta stop myself from doing this. We gotta we gotta we gotta talk about educational games because otherwise yeah. I'm gonna go to, I'm gonna go off Let's on a tangent this here. Podcast about into a music music discovery <laughs> discussion. Maybe we should just start up another podcast all about heavy metal music. We typically start out talking a little bit about the history of our topic. So Jared, why don't we why don't we jump into this? What what is the history of educational video games? If we were gonna look at educational games as as a concept i mean i'm sure we could go way back but one one of the earliest educational games was oregon trail and i think anybody any millennial 100 has played this game that's for sure uh is virtually in every classroom during that time but there, there was a term even before that referred to uh, something called like edutainment it was coined by Disney in the 1950s to kind of des- describe some of their some of their programming that they were putting out. But as far as video games goes, Oregon Trail came out in 1971. It was developed by Don Rottish, and he was a student at the time at Carleton College in Minnesota. And and we've talked about the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium before. Uh, I don't remember what episode that was. That would have when been... we brought up Oregon Trail. That was our representation episode with Tanya DePass. Go listen okay. to that one. That's a great one. Nice. You have a good memory. But yeah, he, he, he developed that while he was a student there, and he coded it in BASIC and presented it to an eighth grade history class when he was student teaching. Uh, he used an HP 2100 microcomputer at the time. Um, I, I am not familiar with that, but I'm assuming it's not micro by today's standards. Well, yeah, probably not. <laughs> he, just, he had a, a five it only take It only takes up one room in your house. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> Um, it, it, but it got popularized on the Apple II computer. And I think, you know, most people, at least in our age range, would have probably played it on the, the floppy, floppy Apple II discs back in the day. Um, but in case there's anyone out there that listens to this podcast and is not familiar with Oregon Trail, uh, you, you play a pioneer family in the 1800s and you're, you're tasked from going from Independence, Missouri to Williamette Valley in Oregon. I really loved that game growing up. I was one of those nerds who didn't just play the hunting, uh, <laughs> but I enjoyed it. It was the first time I was like, hey, inventory management. This is fun. Little did I know that was going to be in every game for the next 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a good game. No, I, I, there's several I, remakes have come out. You can play oh, yeah. You can play all types of uh, remakes of that. The fun fact, don't do this, but if you play the original Oregon Trail and get to the credits, the there's a phone number in there for the helpline and that phone number is still connected to one of the developers so that was interesting that's pretty neat no i definitely in that game 
hunted the buffalo to extinction. Like I was the, <laughs> I was the kid in class who just spent all my time hunting and then was historically confused. accurate. And then I was confused when like <laughs> when my uh, cart wouldn't make it across a river. Like why why do I just fail at the first river every time? I mean, I only have like 2 tons of buffalo meat in my cart. <laughs> and it was the first time I had ever heard of dysentery, so, you yep. know, education. It's classic. It, it, now, was, like, it really was a great game. I mean, it it didn't feel like I was learning, you know. I was I was learning, but it wasn't I wasn't being lectured to. And I yeah. think that was sort of important for me anyways uh, as far as as getting on board with that type of that type of game. Now, Elaine, did you play Oregon Trail in school or outside of school? No. So I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. So I didn't have a lot of access to a lot of the games that people usually play when they're kids here in the States. Early 1800s colonialism is probably not super. Yeah. Not not one of the things that they (laughs) focus on, I would imagine. Have you you since taken the opportunity to, you know, pull up one of the remakes of the games or or anything like that and, and try it out? Yeah, at some point a few years ago when I uh, was studying game design, we had to look back at some of the older older games that have been inspirational in some way or just like, you know, like they call them like this like fundamental games that you should know because they, you know, they're pretty historic in like the, the overall history of what games are. Um, and I remember like playing like a Flash version of it, but I didn't last very long just because I didn't find I didn't find it appealing for me. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I was curious how it sort of holds up because I have not gone back to play it in many, many years. And I'm afraid that if I did, I would probably just hunt the buffalo to extinction once again. Well, if you're looking for like a similar experience, well, I can't say this because I haven't played it, but Oregon Trail came out a few years ago and I think it was 2012. And that was like a similar concept, except it's mm-hmm. Oregon's. Yeah, and you're you're fighting zombies as you as you cross through the United <laughs> That's States. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't know that it like I think it was entertaining, but I don't I can't really speak to the educational aspect of that version. But <laughs> it was fun. It got it was well received. I don't know that it had any redeeming educational qualities. Listen, if it, we we have to teach our our children about zombie defense there, one way or another. There is also the very successful uh, Oregon Trail card game that came out. Uh, and I know there's yes. an expansion or two to that one. And I'm curious that. how I'm curious how that holds up. If someone listening to this has, has played it, let us know how it is because I I have very fond memories of Oregon Trail, um, but I always hesitate to pick up a card game because you never know you never know how it is. Never heard you say that before. What that I'm hesitant to buy a board game? Yeah, I uh, dude. All right, I I actually I do a lot of research before I in, invest in board games because I'm the kind of person who. I can't just buy the board game. I have to buy the board game and all the expansions. It's like this compulsion that I have. So that's that that's why I do my research first. I, I, I definitely make sure before I invest in something, it's going to be something I enjoy because I will also buy all the expansions <laughs> without playing the game. I'm broken. Elaine, uh, when we're talking about educational games or as Jared mentioned earlier, edutainment games, which is actually a term that to me is like a huge turnoff. But I feel like that's gone away for good reason. It, I think it has. I think it has. I, d- I don't know how many people today are that familiar with that term, but I remember when I was younger hearing that term and being like, ugh, no, thank you. <laughs> but when, when we're talking about educational games, how, how do you define an educational game, Elaine? Well, I have mixed feelings about educational games. <laughs> So for sure, when I talk to anybody about what educational games are, and for example, because I work at Ealing Media, like talking about the games and projects that we are working on, 
they are educational based. So I would describe any educational based game to have the core mechanics be about teaching you something very specific. So the whole idea behind the game is for you to learn. Um, and that is different from a game that has embedded, embedded educational elements in it, where you are learning through discovering, or you're learning through playing, or you're learning because you decided to search something on Google because you found interesting something interesting about the game and you wanted to read a little bit more about it. So those things all can kind of come out from a game that perhaps was not even meant to be educational or have any education in it, but it just kind of flourishes. So do, do you think it needs to like a game needs to have a stated goal of being educational to fall into this category of educational games? Because I think of a game like Portal, mm -hmm. which is has been used in physics classes occasionally to teach things about like gravity and momentum and inertia and all these physics concepts. But I don't know that I would call that an educational game because because I don't, to me, it doesn't feel like they're trying to teach you anything. So is, is that kind of where you're going, that it that it doesn't have the stated goal? Exactly. Like, it's, it's a game that has some type of educational objective or goal embedded in it. And to be honest with you, any game, whether analog or digital, has some type of education in it. Because how do you learn how to play the game? You read the rule book in board games, right? Mm -hmm. You When you play a digital game, sometimes you have tutorials that, that teach you how the rules of the game go and what the objectives are and what the lose and win states are. There's always some type of learning experience that comes out of any game that you play. So um, as an educator, in mm -hmm. your opinion, what is more effective to you? A game that has that objective laid out at the beginning as an educational game or games that are video games, but also can be used to teach, you know, something educational. You know, I have been doing research myself for this uh, unannounced game project that we are working on at Eline uh, that I'm, I'm designing for. The idea of making learning fun, like what does that mean and how does that look like? And from game references that I've been collecting and playing, what I have found is that the most successful games are the ones that don't staple the educational elements onto the game by being like, okay, this game's gonna be about chemistry and all you're gonna learn about chemistry, you're gonna go through these steps one, two, three, but the game mechanics are not anything about chemistry at all. We're just like mis mismatching everything together and here's a game. Um, whereas instead you can build the game if it is about chemistry, let's say. so. How do you build a molecule or how do you make a chemical compound? What is a cool puzzle game mechanic that can show that? And how can I, how can the, the learning experience come out of that? Do you see the differences between the mm -hmm. two there? So um, I've been, I've been doing research and finding some really interesting stuff on how different companies are achieving these things. Um, but I think the latter to me, at least personally, I think works. It's always about, if it's gonna be a game, there's a reason why you chose that medium. It's because it's interactive, then make that the focus of the experience. And very early on, if it is going to be about educating something or bringing awareness about something, make sure that there's cohesion from the beginning between the game mechanics and the flow of the game and the objectives and what you're trying to get at. Now, I wanna, I, I wanna kinda loop around to this a little bit later, because I think, 
as we continue this conversation, we'll maybe get a little more context for this part of the discussion. But what I want to talk about right now is something that you had mentioned, which is uh, the game sort of stating its goal as an educational game. Now, how do games present themselves as educational, right? Like, like Portal doesn't necessarily present itself as educational, but what makes Portal different from Oregon Trail? Because Oregon Trail, as far as I know, from my very foggy memory of the game, doesn't say, like, you're going to learn about pioneer life. It's just a game that happens to be about it. So how do games market themselves as educational to separate themselves from everything else? I think a lot of it has to do with marketing. Because, for example, at Eline, we have this platform that we develop. It's the very first product that Eline made called Game Star Mechanic. And it is an in-browser, like, flash-based, very simplistic drag-and-drop game engine so that young kids learn how to make games without programming. So it's kind of like Scratch, except you don't do the programming part. It's just all game-based. So you're dragging and dropping avatars, you're dragging and dropping enemies, blocks, and then with UI, you can choose to change properties like speed and how many units of damage or how many units of health things have, mm. things like that. So um, that was very much marketed as an educational platform. This, like, it's, this is not just like... Minecraft, right, where it started off it's just like a, a game to play for fun. Mm -hmm. And then the educational branch of it came later because that wasn't the original intent, right? Mm -hmm. So with GameStar Mechanic, the original intent was to educate. So where did we market that? Well, schools. And we made partnerships with schools and we brought them into the classrooms and things like that. So I think it, it has to do much more than just the design team. It definitely has to do with the company's vision of what that product is going to be. And there are certain things in aesthetics that separate true educational games from just a consumer-based game that has some type of educational stuff embedded in it. Um, like a lot of the color schemes tend to be like really cartoony. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. Oh, yeah. Um, no, that's a great point. Yeah. It's a, a very cartoony, very they they because they, they're targeting young kids. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess that's the sense that in order to, t to target young kids, you need to be cartoony and have primary bright colors. Yeah, I mean, Fortnite, Fortnite figured that out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> um, but Fortnite, see, they were, they were very clever in the way that they did that because it is cartoony and it is bubbly and bright colors. But then if you look at the way that things are modeled, it's very detailed as well. So mm -hmm. it catches the eye like immediately from younger kids because of the colors, but because of the complexity of the world building, you grab the older kids. So they were able to to really create uh, a very popular game that they're making millions off of. So they were very, very incredibly intelligent. You said you didn't get a chance to play Oregon Trail when when you were younger. younger what was no. your what was your first exposure to an educational game? So. My very first game was uh, in the Jumpstart series. And the Jumpstart is like this big educational company. And the very first game that I played was Jumpstart Third Grade. Um, and it was, I don't know if you guys have ever played it. That was like my, one of my favorite games of all time. It doesn't ring the bell. Yeah, it was just a PC game. And the whole story surrounded this robot character named Botley. And his creator the science guy had a daughter and the dad went away and she was in charge with like the entire like scientific compound 
And she just started to screw around with like all the robots and everything that her dad had created. So you go on this adventure with Botley and he's trying to bring back all the robots that this little girl decided to disperse all over the place. So you just need to bring them all together and bring order back to the compound. So that was really fun. And there's just a series of mini games that you do like math based, science, astronomy, history, English, like all, all the subjects that you would learn in school. And then all the mini games are based around that. And every single robot that you had to rescue had a, an, and a very specific narrative that you have to follow. So that was really cool. I really enjoyed the game. Now, was it was it effective at actually teaching you those lessons? Like, to this day, do you remember what some of those puzzles were? Absolutely. All right. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. I think a, a lot of the, the stuff that I remember is because it was so frustrating to me to get some of the things right. Because you have, like, something that's, like, a math equation that you need to set up, but it's timing-based. So I would, keep, I would keep screwing up because I would get the thing correct, but I wouldn't do it at the right time. So I remember that being a, a big deal for me. And also, I remember very distinctly an astronomy puzzle that they had. You had to look into the stars and find the correct constellation that whatever objective you needed to find, the constellation was there. But within the constellation, you had to sift through all the stars that connected that constellation. And it was legitimate it was like real names of stars and the constellations and that's where you would find the proper thing you had to like sift through them so that was like super interesting to me and i always like astronomy so that really stuck with me to this day jared what was your first experience with an educational game probably oregon trail to be honest although i can i think i remember playing number munchers before that uh number munchers was a educational game where you eat all the numbers that are you know, dividable by two, you know, and it would amp up from there. I love that game a lot. Uh, I remember playing in kindergarten. I very specifically remember sitting down and that was like my favorite thing about going to school was playing these games. And that, that was also, Number Munchers also came out of uh, the MECC, that Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium. Um, and, and that's going back to what you said about what makes something quote unquote educational game. And, and I think a lot of that stemmed from this this organization, MECC, where they marketed their games to the public school system and were able to get that widespread distribution uh, across the country. And I, and I think that probably made a huge impact on getting video games into that space and, and getting people to think differently about the medium and it wasn't just idle entertainment. So um, I think we probably can't give enough credit in this regard to that uh, organization really as on as, as their ideas were. Jared, you want to hear how good my memory is? We've mentioned, we've mentioned number munchers on this show before. I'm, I'm sure we have. We, <laughs> it's a classic. We mentioned it in our seasonal events episode with Cicero Holmes. It's a good episode. Go listen. To oh, it. okay. What, did, did number munchers change into if you opened seasonal it, themes? If you opened it, I can't remember if it was just in December or if it was on Christmas Day, but the the number muncher would be wearing a Santa Claus hat. So there you go. Easter eggs. Easter eggs. Uh, my first experience with a educational game was probably Oregon Trail, but I also have, I never owned Oregon Trail. At least I don't believe I ever did. Um, I always played that at school. But at home, I had Carmen Sandiego. Where in the world oh, is yes. Carmen Sandiego? It's a yep. classic. I played that one too. I did play that one. 
It's great, right? It was super awesome, and I played it in Spanish. Oh, nice. That, that's probably <laughs> that's probably way better. The so for those who never played it, the premise is that this this woman Carmen San Diego, she's jet setting around the world, and you got to track her down. Now, I don't know as much as I loved Carmen San Diego. I don't know that it taught me the lesson that it set out to teach. Right, like the 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 way the clues all worked in that game is like, oh, Carmen San Diego, she's she went to a country whose main export is corn or whatever. You know, it's like, uh, man, if someone gave me those as directions, I, I would have to a long talk. Uh, so you're just gonna head south until you get to a country that has uh, three inches of rainfall annually. Then you're gonna make a right. <laughs> but those are like the kinds of clues that 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 game gave. And then my game also came with an almanac did yours come with an almanac no, um I, I, I you know if it was i that's another game i only played in school my copy of the game came with an almanac included with the game and i i believe the goal of carmen san diego was to teach you about geography and i don't know that it necessarily did a good job of that because i don't remember any of the the lessons that i learned but the one thing that it did teach me that was really good was how to do research, right? Like how to how to research in an almanac to find this information. So this is where I think we might get into some discussions a little later about the effectiveness of the stated goals of these educational games. But we'll 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 table that for a little later because I I think I think we'll we'll have some interesting things to talk about. Are you playing anything right now, Elaine? That that relates to educational games. To education. Well, right now for work, because we're uh, uh, developing this idea for a new project, I'm playing a lot of the reference games that we have listed. So I've been playing Exapunks. It's supposed to teach you, like, you're supposed to be a hacker in this game, right? Mm -hmm. And there's, like, an, a, a very, like, a customized uh, programming language, quote-unquote, that they developed so that you can learn. Uh, how to hack like different computers in the game and stuff like that. With that one, it's super interesting because they they give you a PDF and they recommend that you print it out so that you always have like this physical copy to look at stuff. And it makes sense because I I was the rebel and I was like, you know, what? I'm just gonna use a digital version because I want to print something out right now. And it I I found myself like using post its and like writing stuff down because. It's one of those games where they it makes you think about how to set things properly. There's like a strategy and a sequencing. So that has been pretty interesting since the game that we are making is about programming and making programming fun and using puzzles in order to do it. So trying to like figure out what other people have done in order to get that across. So Exapunks has been pretty interesting. And another one that I've been playing is the Talos Principle. Oh, yeah. It's not really an educational game, but it's I like the idea of like environmental physical puzzles because they really do make you think. And one of the things that we are trying to get at with this new project that we're we're working on is um, pro uh, problem solving and systems thinking. So when you code and when you develop you know, any type of, whether it's a game or an application or something, there are certain things, logically speaking, that you need to go through. One of them is, okay, what is my problem? And how do I design a solution in order to fix that problem? Um, so I wanted to, to use that principle in order to 
to make some environmental uh, puzzle prototypes. So Talos principle is really cool and any puzzle game really like Portal, for example, where it does present a problem where it's like, oh, I need to get to that door and there's, I obviously cannot get to it right away. So what is, what are the steps that I need to go through in order to do it? So Talos principle has been really cool with that one too, like placing different things in order to obstruct like the turrets or, or any type of electronical thing so that you can go through point A to point B. That's been really fun. Well, what do you think about a game like Minecraft that was not necessarily designed as an educational game, but has kind of been, well, co-opted isn't the right word, but has been accepted sort of in an educational setting, right? Like schools get sets of keys to Minecraft. Does that, has that become an educational game because it has those elements of setting your own goals and spatial awareness and and building and cooperation does has minecraft become an educational game in that way you know with minecraft i think that the reason why it has become synonymous with education it's because it started to get marketing that way and people's perception of it being an educational game has become the norm i think that's what has ended up happening with that game because other than that i don't see a lot of people being like, oh yeah, I'm just playing Minecraft for just just because I want to. No. Like I don't hear that as often anymore. I feel like this is a tough discussion for me because I haven't been in school for a decade. You know, it's been forever mm-hmm. since I graduated, and I am not part of the educational system. So I guess maybe I I wouldn't be exposed to those quote unquote educational games, right? The games that are made for a very specific purpose. You know, I, I guess like the one thing that I could think of would be a lot of VR games that are coming out that are being used using alternate reality. And, you know, at GDC, we saw VR used for teaching med students and, and showing like how how anatomy works in a living person. And it's it's really interesting to see that come back using the new medium with VR because uh, I, I just I haven't been seeing it in a while like you I feel like I did when I was growing up. Now Elaine, is Elaine interested in VR and AR applications of educational games? Like is is that something that started to make its way into the like the make room curriculum or even at like the university is that something that's at, at Rutgers is that something that's making its way into those curriculums? Well, at Rutgers I have seen an after school club like an extracurricular club try to do some stuff with AR and VR and some research labs using it, but there's no class for it. And I think that largely has to do with the equipment, not, you know, allocating funds in order to buy Mm -hmm. a specific amount of headsets and have them available for the students to use. Yeah. When I was at USC, that wasn't the case because I was in a program that was game design and interactive media. So you have uh, undergrads, grads and doctoral students all using these equipment so there we had a a technology slash equipment library where we could actually check out uh like a dk1 or dk2 back back in the day with oculus Mm. and have it for an x amount of time and turn it in like a book um and that's just because you know the university had that resource whereas Rutgers doesn't necessarily have that and not that they don't have it, I, I'm just, I'm pretty sure they just, they're choosing to invest elsewhere. <laughs> um, no, that's totally fair. 
and we can talk about like administration and logistics and all that <laughs> stuff, but well, that's just how it is. If we're talking specifically how VR and AR are used in the educational game space, I, I, I would think like, oh, VR and AR are going to open this huge door for learning. But at the same time, it's exactly like what you're talking about, right? Like access to the technology seems like a big stumbling block, right? Like you, right. you can you can make this super cool educational game using VR that really lets a student or, or someone get involved in whatever it is, the, the stated lesson of the, the, the software. But getting that headset on someone seems like the hard part and thus maybe might not make those pursuits attractive to designers. Right, exactly. I mean, AR and VR definitely has an accessibility barrier. So it's part of the reason why I haven't touched it at all in my curriculum. I just focus on using either their PCs or Macs and building games for that. But with Make Room, we do have a VR game project that the kids do work on. But that was, it's, it's not educational based. It's like a gallery like a shooting gallery type of game where there's like these drones that are coming towards you and you need to shoot them before they get to you so what we try to do with that is also teach the kids how to collaborate because the code that goes to something like that with the plugins and everything in order to make the vr system work with unity it's just too complicated for the kids to know especially when they're just starting to learn how to make games so what we have them do is collaborate with the engineers from the studio and the engineers will Skype in with them and give them a walkthrough of how they implemented their design. Because we, we assign the kids prompts and they get to design ideas and then engineers or myself, like I help them like implement those ideas into their game projects. That's really cool. So, um, what's, what's, the, that's what's, the what's the maximum age for someone that can take part in Make Room? Would you accept? Would you uh, accept a thirty-one-year-old man who, who has some ideas for games? <laughs> is there an age? Is there an age limit on this? <laughs> yeah, for Make Room, we start them. We we take them. It's supposed to be thirteen to eighteen. Um, but I missed my chance. We do, take, missed. <laughs> we do take kids sometimes that are a year younger or a year older. How about? It, it really depends. How about children at heart? Children are doesn't count. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. You have to cut, cut a couple inches off your beard, Steve. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm curious, Elaine, about your thoughts on something like uh, Assassin's Creed. Last year, Assassin's yeah. Creed Origins, they created sort of like a free roam mode in their world with mm -hmm. like an accompanying commentary where you could just walk in as a character in the game, walk around sites like the Pyramids of Giza and there would be commentary on, on how they were built and their historical significance and stuff like that. How do you feel about games that are not necessarily educational games starting to include educational components as part of the game? Does that seem like it would be effective at, at teaching people or does that seem like Ubisoft maybe wasted a bunch of their time because no one's interested in it? Well, with a game like Assassin's Creed, that it really is rooted in history um, I think it's super important to stay true to what you're actually building in that digital world. Um, you know that Ubisoft has an in-house historian, right? Um, I, just I one? That, I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? they, they just have one. They just have one. But wow, I'm, I'm actually shocked historian. it's only one. 
Yeah, but they do have a historian full-time on staff that, I guess his job is really to fact-check all the things that they are creating in the dialogues and stories that they're building. Hmm. But with that game specifically, I feel like you need to have something in order to tell you about these ancient worlds and his, like historical figures. Like You have Leonardo da Vinci in, in, in Assassin's Creed 2, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you have like American political figures in Assassin's Creed 3, which is the last Assassin's Creed that I, that I played, actually. Mm. Um, but I know for a fact that in order to bring those worlds to life and make it believable, there, there has to be some type of fact-checking within the world where you can learn more about it if you choose to learn it, yeah. right? Because I hate when games are like spoon-feed you information about things and you just sift through it. Like, for example, um, like picking up in Bioshock, like picking up one of the audio recorders and oh, yeah. grabbing narrative. Mm-hmm. Like, sometimes it's just like, shut up. Like, I don't want to hear it. I just want to play. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I like I like the option of, of being able to replay it later, perhaps when I do want to, you know, find that narrative a little bit more. Um, but I, I do not like the option of being forced to yeah. listen or read something that I just don't care about. And it's really doing nothing for my objective at the moment. Now, do you see any issues with a game like Assassin's Creed Origins where they definitely went through the care to add this educational component to it, but then they also have chocobos in that game? Like, does that <laughs> does that create a problem where it's like... I mean, you're also fighting, like, ancient gods. Exactly, and yeah. And same thing with, like, Assass- Assassin's Creed 2, right? Like, Leonardo da Vinci's there, and he's the one who, like, mm-hmm. invented the Assassin's Blade or whatever it is that, like, shoots out of your hand. You're like, <laughs> like these games that that clearly seem to be, like, have at least some educational goal. Well, you know, maybe it, it might not be, perf- you know, like, outwardly stated. Like, we're trying to teach you a lesson. But they are set in like real time, you know, in real time in history and include these historical figures. Is there any danger to them also then having these extravagant components as well? I I think you you definitely it, it you take a risk. It's a gamble. Um, you're gonna have people who don't even know who those people are, right? Because mm-hmm. what the, we learned the American in the education United system, States, I know. Exactly, <laughs> right? Um, it's just it's not going to compare to somewhere somewhere else. I think that if that's the case, whatever team is deciding to to make those narrative decisions or whatever, just be upfront about it. It's just like we use this historical figure, but by no means is it real. You know, it's a fictitious mm-hmm. storyline. We just wanted to use this person's name or background in order to tie it into the period, the time period that we chose in this game. Right. So I think that intent is also very important. And if you upfront say that while you're developing, like, hey, we are going to use Leonardo da Vinci in this fictitious world because it fits the time frame that we're using. But he's going to do really crazy stuff like build an assassin's weapon system. Like, that's fine. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's like, it's not like Ubisoft is out da there Vinci. like trying to pitch this to parents as education. Yeah. Right. But, but, <laughs> exactly. but they kind of are. Right. And, and don't get me wrong. I, I'm not saying. I don't think most I think most people would be smart enough to understand the distinction between like the educational components of a video game and the uh, (laughs) the fantastical components of it. I'm just sort of bringing this up for mostly for discussion. But when you do pitch a game like Assassin's Creed Origins as having this educational component 
does that then muddy those waters a little bit? Like, does it? I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's my opinion. I, I'm sure that Ubisoft team may have other things to say yeah. about it. But I think if you are marketing something, you're targeting something very specifically as being a game about teaching you something or being true to something very specific, you have to be very conscious about what are the decisions, design decisions and goals that you are trying to embed in that game, right? Because then if you create something that doesn't abide by that, you're going to have a lot of backlash. You're going to have people being like, oh, I thought you were going to make a game about XYZ, but you gave me ABC instead. I'm not going to spend my money on it. You know what I mean? Can video games teach anything? Like, it, can, can they teach us literally anything? Or are there certain things that video games excel at teaching? I think that video games can, can teach us anything. And, and the reason why they can be good at that is because of the interactive component. It's not the same thing as watching, like, a documentary. Like, I remember in, in high school, like, watching videos on, like, in biology class or in chemistry mm-hmm. class and how incredibly boring those those videos were um and just like the pacing and the monotone uh voice of the (laughs) the narrator and it's just like i am zoning out i am actually not learning a thing because of the content even though the content may be interesting everything surrounding it is absolutely boring but um whereas in games you have to physically engage with it somehow you have to give your input you have to problem solve something you have to read something and react to it that process of using your literally using your brain in order to solve something is what makes games incredible tools for educational purposes now i want to i want to maybe play a little game and i know i'm gonna it's gonna be very difficult because i'm giving you a very short amount of time to do this but like i said earlier uh the game where in the world is carmen san diego i the stated goal of that game certainly seemed to be teaching geography, but the lesson that I learned was more along the lines of like how to do the research, like how to mm-hmm. how to arrive at that information on my own was was what I learned from playing that game. But how would you change a game like Where in the World is Carmen San Diego to accomplish the goal of teaching geography? Say so the way to do that properly, and to be honest, um. There's no one way of doing that. So my answer is just going to be how I would go about it. Mm-hmm. But if my intended design goal, so when you when you learn how to make games, at least when I went to USC to learn how to make it, one of the things that we were uh, asked to do for our, our game projects was to always think about the design goal and the player's goal. And if the design goal is to make a game about learning world geography, one of the player goals or two of them need to align with that design goal. Because then you're going to have discrepancies between the game's design and what you want the player to do. And that's where you get your you learning research instead of actually learning geography. So if the design goal of Carmen Sandiego, if I were to design it, was to make a game about learning geography, and one of my player goals was to be able to locate different cities, major cities in different countries around the world. Now I can build a game mechanic and a structure that allows for that to happen. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's really about aligning what the game what the game is and what you want the player to do. 
And when those align properly, then you get the correct objective or the correct end goal of what the game should be. I thought that was going to be way harder to answer than it seemed. (laughs) (laughs) It's very theoretical. Like games are incredibly theoretical and you completely miss that when you just play them. Because a lot of the, the common the common gamer just thinks about the graphics and am I having fun and can am I having fun with my friends? They don't think about the structures of level design and sometimes why things are placed where they are and why certain rule sets are placed where they are. For example, in Assassin's Creed, again, why is it that you kill X amount of people, you get desynchronized, but when you leave, when you're too an X amount of distance away from a, a goal, you're also desynchronized, right? Mm-hmm. So these are things that you learn what we call in their implicit rules because they it's just something that you learn about the world that isn't given to you, right? You just kind of figure it out and then you learn not to do it. And that's what makes games fun too. <laughs> that kind of ties into a friend of the show, Jenny Shorele. She she wrote an article a long time ago, or it was it was a series of tweets about tricks in game design and she mm-hmm. she went on to give a talk at gdc about it and now i believe she's publishing a book and it's mm-hmm. a lot of that kind of thing where you are encouraging player behavior through you know very clever design tricks and i think that 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 can really tie into you know how games can be educational it's you're you're, you're you are trying to focus the player's efforts in a way where hopefully they take something away from it in the end yeah. or, you know, inadvertently learn something. <laughs> that's no. that's my personal favorite way well, to, to learn something. Well, you know? Jared, yeah. Do games, do they succeed at teaching best when they're hiding their goal of teaching in your mind, Jared? Like when, it, when a game doesn't I mean, explicitly say it? I, it's, it's hard to say because so many people learn in different ways. And I, I think that... Um, we're starting to look at that more as as you know a culture like how how do people learn and why standardized testing necessarily is not the best way to you know gauge someone's engagement or, or their learning abilities so you know for me personally yeah i think that when i am uh engaged in a, in a task and I, I i will take that away whether or not i want to you know because i am mm-hmm. interested in it. it activates that part of my brain where it's not just me learning and memorizing a fact or, or a skill or how to do something or a process. It's me learning how to figure out how to do that. So games for me as an educational tool have always been, it, 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 it fostered, you know, a curiosity of, of how to figure things out. And um, I think, you know, some of the best games, which we bring up a lot, such as Portal, and uh, do that in, in a very natural and organic way where it's not, it doesn't feel like you're being, like you're, you have, you're being forced to learn something, you know? We talked about the term edutainment kind of being a bad word, right? Like it's kind of a turnoff to have to have that word be plastered onto a game. But I think that most people, Jared, are like you. Well, I'm, I'm certainly like you, right? Like I don't like when a game says, look, I'm going to teach you this lesson. I like when it develops naturally. But that ends up at odds with this definition that we've created of educational games. Sure. So I, I guess I don't know like... This is probably where it gets very tricky to do things like market an educational game, right? Like you want the educational components to be obvious, but you don't want you don't want it to seem teachy, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> like it's it seems like a very difficult tightrope for a, for a, a genre of game to walk effectively. 
And I imagine it's difficult to, you know, we, we have enough problems in our educational system as it is, and getting getting that kind of funding to do those kinds of things is, is a whole nother bureaucratic nightmare. And if you look at the MECC's prolific around the late 70s and 80s, and, you know, they were kind of around when I was in elementary school, but there really hasn't been anything like that. There hasn't been a major move to try to widely distribute educational software, as far well, as I know. I, I well, mean, I could be just out of the loop on this stuff. Well, and I think a lot of that stuff has maybe changed with the way that technology has changed also. Cause I think a lot of that stuff, uh, a lot of like educational things have moved more towards like app focus. Mm-hmm. You have, you have companies like leapfrog that have like their own line of tablets and stuff that kids can, can buy and, and play games on that are, that are learning based. Elaine, when, when you're talking about making a game, that's educational. Are there other considerations that you have to make when you're when you're making that decision to make an educational game that a typical, you know, game designer doesn't necessarily have to think about? Uh, I guess I'm going to add on to that. And like, are there ethical implications to that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, well, for one, funding is much easier to find when you're making something educational versus something for consumption. There's a lot of organizations that you could tap into that are willing to give you money for using technology as a means to teach. That's that's honestly um, like, I did not expect to hear that. I'm glad, oh yeah. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it, but that was not the answer I was expecting. Yeah, you would be surprised. And every genre imaginable of any subject that you could think of has a dedicated organization somewhere around the world that you can tap into and, and ask for funding. For me specifically, so I'm working on this indigenous-based project about the Puerto Rican indigenous community. And because as Native, I can tap into first the First Nations and write a proposal and be like, all right, I am asking for funding to do this indigenous project. And they will take a look at it because of it. And I haven't done that yet because grant writing and proposal writing is very difficult. Mm-hmm. But that's something that's available to me because of the the subject matter that I'm trying to use for this game. There is the National like Archiving Association. It's like the Library Association. Um, they're very tied with like information systems. Like technology is a big thing um, when it comes to archiving uh, and information and informatics like the the study of information science and there's so many organizations there that are just giving money away for things like how to use uh vr for anxiety relief and things like that or using vr in order to to learn teamwork like corporate a lot of corporations are starting to hire game developers in order to make like ar vr applications or or systems so that their teams can communicate better or be able to, I guess, do team building exercises together in a different way that they wouldn't be able to if they were in the same room or if they were overseas and Skyping, things like that. So there's a lot of of different things going on all over tech. But can you repeat the question again? Because I lost my train of thought. Well, I was I was wondering if there were if there were any challenges that you face when you're making an educational game that you may not face making something that's a little more I don't know commercial based. Okay, so when it comes to design, is making it making it interesting to be honest, and making it fun, making the educational content fun. I think is the most challenging thing in making edu- education based games. 
Now, a while ago, we we did an episode about accessibility with Sharif Jackson. Great episode. Go listen to mm-hmm. it. In that episode, we uh, we talked about Minecraft. At least I believe we talked about Minecraft in that one. And Minecraft, because it sort of became an educational game, had to incorporate a lot of accessibility options. Like once a game gets classified as an educational game and is being bought by schools, I guess there's other requirements that it has to meet is that something that that gets taken into consideration with the games that you're working on or is that stuff is that stuff already sort of like pre-built in at the ground level on your games because eline's been doing this for a while now well with eline it's a little bit different every game project needs to not necessarily be approved but all of the content in the games definitely need to go through our executive branches and the board so they are the ones that have the last say on what gets put in the game and things like that. It's really about collaborating with the board and the foundations that fund us in order to create a product that we think is going to be successful, but that also is in alignment with the vision that they have for the project. How does that end up manifesting in the product itself? Do you kind of get all the funding lined up first and then make a game that satisfies all of the, the needs of the investors or the, the clients? Or do you do those things come in throughout the project and then you have to adapt the project to meet those needs? How does, how does that happen? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I'm not in the business development side of the company, so I really don't know too much about how it all works. I do know that, you know, at the start of every project, there's a pool of money, right? So Mm -hmm. that a team can get hired and you can start developing something. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm for sure I know of of money coming in, like after a certain amount of time to add new features that may align with a new direction that the executives would like to go in or that they would like to explore, for example. So that if it is a little bit of both, you, you obviously definitely need the something to money to start off with, but then money can come and go during the duration of the project, depending on what ends up happening. How can the video game industry improve in the way that it makes markets or does anything else with educational games? Like, where do you see areas for improvement with the way that educational games make it into players' hands? The idea that you only need to learn when you are young. I feel like that's something in our society. It's just like after you hit a certain age, you're an adult and you don't need to learn anymore. You just live your life. You go to work, you eat, you sleep and do it all over again. Right. It's like very robotic. And I feel like the common folk in society is very much like that. And, you know, it's. It's something that you can definitely talk more about, like as a human being and as a member of society, because there are some people that need to do that. Like they need to put bread on the table. They're low income. They don't have the luxury of buying a game and having some free time. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think the overall sense that there's a certain point in your life where you stop learning and you don't need to buy anything or read anything in order to learn more. I think that is also a negative connotation that needs to go away in regards to educational games and and just learning as as a whole in an American society. I, I never want to stop learning. Even as a developer, I'm constantly updating myself with a game engine that I'm using, like 
what are better ways to, to do certain things that I already know how to do. Um, and that's why being a teacher is has helped me significantly as a designer and developer because I'm constantly revamping that curriculum and teaching my students the newest things that I know about and relaying fresh information so that they are not stuck with Unity 5 from like three, four, five years ago. Yeah. You know what I mean? Which, which is the reality in some schools because you have a faculty member who only knows that and right. that's what they teach. So I think also being fresh and updated to see what is, what is new in the world, like uh, a subject like climate change, you know, something that's evolving and changing um, and that we definitely have in this past year um, have seen the impact that climate change has been having all around the world. How do we make that accessible? How do we make that information accessible and interactive so that not just kids, but anybody can learn about what's going on in the world and how it's affecting us. You know, mm -hmm. there are so many different things that we can talk about and use games as a means to to relay information. That's beautifully said. Jared, in your mind, as, as a player of video games, what can educational games do differently to improve or what can developers do differently to improve the approach to educational games? Yeah, it's it's a hard question for me just because I, I don't know that I've played, you know, quote unquote, educational game in a very long time. You know, I've, I've obviously played games with educational components over it uh, over the years since being out of the school system. But, um, you know, I, I what I I guess I could speak to what I do like, you know, I I, I consider myself a lifelong learner. I, I, I will always be open to new ideas and new and new ways of doing things. Things that I really enjoy are. When I play a game and, and I learn something that I maybe not have even thought about before, like uh, one of the examples that I thought of is the ways that the first Red Dead Redemption taught me that video games can tell stories in ways that are different than the ways that movies tell stories. You mm -hmm. know, I didn't need that Metal Gear Solid game necessarily to always be here's a half hour cutscene to show you the story parts of it. Um, and you now have games that are all about these immersive, uh, emergent gameplay uh, is, is the key word there. Um, so stuff like that kind of got me thinking about how you can tell stories in a different way. Something that inspires me to learn more about the subject matter. You know, yeah. God of War got me interested in, in Norse mythology a little bit. So I do a little bit of Googling around just to satisfy that curiosity. Yeah, I think you're I think you make a good point. I think. One of the one of the true benefits of art, all art, is that it has this capability to like backdoor lessons on you, right? Like like you can get involved in in an aesthetic, you can get your involved in a story, but then to to parlay that into something that actually is like meaningful information is has always been one of the great benefits of art. I think for a lot of time video games have sort of tried to occupy this like apolitical space, I don't, which I think is an impossible task. But I think that for a long time, games have sort of done that. And, and now that we're seeing a lot of games adopting very strong political stances on things, yeah, it's making some people uncomfortable, but it is also getting people talking about a lot of different subjects. To, to kind of piggyback off what you guys are both saying, I think embracing that aspect of video games as art and being okay with the idea that a video game can teach a lesson will go a long way. 
And and just to add a point with uh, games trying to be apolitical, the reason why it's so hard to be apolitical in a game is because human beings are designing games, and every single game project that we are a part of as designers and developers, they're going to have an extension of ourselves in them. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you have real human beings making a game. Obviously, their opinions, their morals, their life experiences are going to somehow be inside the game that they're creating. Absolutely. Um, because it's all in their head. It's all in their creativity. It's all what they're passionate about and what they have lived. So it's really, like you said, it's a, that's why games, are re, are, it's just really hard for games to be apolitical because they are just made by human beings and we are just political beings. Mm-hmm. We, we have morals. We have um, ethical standings. We uh, have experiences with different political structures all around the world, you know, and we are receptive to that. And we use our medium, our crafts, in order to amplify those opinions and those feelings and those experiences. Well said. Yep, very well said. And this is a educational games is actually a topic that I know a lot of listeners have been interested in. I've actually heard feedback from people that wanted us to talk about this for a long time. So I'm glad that we were actually able to jump into this. But now that we're drawing this conversation to a close, I'm curious to hear what our listeners think about educational games. So if you have any questions or comments about educational games, go ahead and send us an email, podcast at gbfeature.com. I want to hear what you guys have to say. Guys, gals, everyone in between, everyone outside of those parameters. Let us know what you uh, what you think about educational games. Because like I said, I know this is a topic that a lot of people are interested in hearing about because I think kind of what we were just talking about with a lot more viewpoints being expressed in video games I think we as a culture are more interested in the educational impacts that video games can have you can also connect with us at GB feature on Twitter you can get get your comments to us there as well Jared why don't we go ahead and and jump into some of our listener feedback yeah we got a message from Josh F regarding uh, our aging games episode yeah, Josh says, I liked the old video games episode. I keep thinking about how blasphemous yet true it is that Call of Duty is the, quote, better version of GoldenEye. You guys had a good conversation about that. And uh, just to recap, I think I think that we came to an agreement between the two of us, at least, that while GoldenEye did some very important things as far as couch co-op and multiplayer gaming, a lot of that was also reflected in later games like Call of Duty, mm-hmm. where they, they took that and made that modern version of that and made it a more enjoyable experience while still retaining all the things that were good about GoldenEye. By, by no means is that definitive. I think it's just the point that we were trying to make. Yeah. Um, it is blasphemous. <laughs> I, <laughs> it is. Sure. I, mean, I mean, I think I even said it at the time, like, th- this is probably going to get us some mail. But I was thinking about it since then. I don't know that Call of Duty is a better version of Goldeneye. You know what I think is actually a better version of Goldeneye? The Jack Tetris. the Jackbox Party Pack. You know what I mean? Like I think that okay. I think that the Jackbox okay. Party Pack recreated so much of what made Goldeneye special that I would say maybe that's the better version of Goldeneye. So more of that more of that feeling of of community and, and playing with friends yeah and don't get me wrong like call of duty obviously learned a lot of lessons about multiplayer from GoldenEye. but when i when i think about the things that were special about GoldenEye, call of duty doesn't evoke those feelings something like rock band or something like uh, the jackbox party games those are more reminiscent of 
the feelings that attracted me to GoldenEye at the time that it came out. So yeah, maybe it was all like Occupy your special part of my brain. Yeah, my so, memories. so maybe maybe I'll amend my original comment and say Call of Duty, kind of, but these other games definitely. That's some crazy abstract thinking right there. It definitely is. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I do on this podcast, Jared. Elaine, did you ever play GoldenEye? Yes, I did, and my father took it away from me and my brothers because he thought it was too what. Violent. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait. Why did he? Why did he take it away? Because he thought it was too violent. Uh, oh they yeah. They had guns. Yeah. Yeah. You could have turned on paintball mode or turned on slappers only. There you go. No, <laughs> he just completely took it away from us. And we ended up finding it. Uh, my brother and I ended up going into the closet because my dad, every time he would hide stuff, he would always put it in the closet somewhere. <laughs> so my brother and I both went to the closet and we just like opened every box and every every suitcase that we could find until we actually found it that's da- and that's dangerous play it. <laughs> we would play it after school and then before my father got home we would put it back <laughs> yes see Classic. you learned you learned how to undermine your father there's a lesson in, in golden eye as well yes <laughs> what else we got jared anything uh we put up a, a poll regarding our uh puzzle games episode and the question mm-hmm. was what is the best puzzle game ever made and uh we had but a few options you know twitter only lets you put in so many so many mm-hmm. options um the options were portal mist braid and tetris uh mainly, mainly because i think those are the games we discussed the most on that episode mm-hmm. um we had some feedback uh sharif from spawn on me he wrote to us and he said i never really think of tetris as a puzzle game but if it's included it's got to be the winner and, and, and you kind of re- clarified that uh, you always kind of thought of Tetris as an action game with puzzle elements. So we, we kind of went over that that type of thing. But it's a it's a weird thing when we start to try to put games into genres, especially nowadays. Um, but yeah, I, w- I would agree. Tetris is a very good puzzle game. And I think a lot of people would, would put that in, in the upper echelons. Uh, Aldrin, he was he was he joined us for our peripherals episode, right? Gaming mm-hmm. peripherals. Yep. Um, he runs a podcast called what is it? The Alder Nintendo Podcast. Uh, he he talks all about Nintendo games, and no surprise, one of his favorite puzzle games was Pokemon Puzzle League, and it was a version of Tetris Attack. He really liked that yeah. game. There's I a lot of there's a lot of Tetris love out there. See, I think yeah, in that yeah. in our puzzle episode, I had posited that Portal was the best puzzle game ever made, and Osama, our guest at the time had guessed that probably 95% of people would agree with that statement. That's not how this that's not how this uh this poll went down. It Portal did Portal did win. Portal won. Portal won. Pretty good margin, but let's just say we didn't have the hugest sample size. Yeah, but I also would have expected it to be way more in Portal's favor and there was a lot more Tetris love than I was expecting. Although I probably should have expected it. Hey, uh, I just you, think that it's been around it? longer, more people have had time. You know, if we had a bigger sample size, Tetris is probably, probably more accessible to more people. Elaine, did you want to did you want to cast a vote in this poll again? The, the choices were Portal, Mist, Braid, Tetris, or you could just fill in the blank with with whatever your favorite puzzle game is. Uh, no, I would definitely have to say Portal. Oh that was hell one yeah! Of the most enjoyable <laughs> games I've ever played. That that was that was one of the po- the first puzzle games that didn't make me feel like an idiot for not understanding it. Like I I get frustrated when I can't figure that kind of stuff out, uh, and I never really felt that with Portal, and uh, it made me feel you know like a genius when I did. So yeah, that's, yeah right. That's exactly. the spot it occupies for me. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, thank you to Josh F. for writing in that email. And then thank you to everyone that took our poll on Twitter. Uh, again, if you have any questions, comments, concerns with any of our topics, always send us an email at podcast at gbfeature.com. And that's going to do it for this episode. Before we get out of here, I have to thank our guest, Elaine Gomez. Elaine, thank you so much for being here. This has been a joy. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking about all this stuff with you guys. No, it was it was absolutely our pleasure having you here. Now, how can keep us updated on on your uh, the game that you're working on? Right oh now, yeah, for like... sure. Definitely let us know whenever you can share more details because we'd be happy to share that out on Twitter and here on the podcast. But where where oh of course where can people keep up with you and and where can they get those details straight from the source? All my game dev stuff I have on my Twitter account. So that is my handle is Chulatastic. Chula is a Spanish word, but it's fairly simple. It's just C H U L A. And then Tastic, like fantastic. So that's my handle. And that's where I live pretty much, uh, aside from on the computer developing. Well, Elaine, thank you again for joining us. As a reminder, we release new episodes of this podcast every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and want to help us out, head over to our iTunes and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, on iTunes. I'm Stephen Bennett. That's at Stephen underscore the gamer on Twitter. And I believe I'm still at Jared Bruner on Twitter. You should be. We want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. As long as you learn something. As long as, yeah. Well, we, we try to teach things here. I don't know how successful <laughs> we are. Thanks, guys.